Hey everybody, this is Brent Kellogg, the pastor of Hillspring Church in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And this is our podcast. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Our prayer is that this would inspire you, build your faith, and help you take the next step in Christ. Enjoy the message. Walking through the book of Daniel, and the idea is how you and I can learn from Daniel and his peers how not to compromise in a Babylonian culture, because I really feel there's some similarities between the culture and the time that Babylon was the empire of the world and that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego lived in and how you and I can stand strong against a a Babylonian-type culture. Before I get to Daniel chapter four, I wanna start in Matthew chapter seven because Jesus said something, and maybe even if you had a kid's Bible or kind of a kid's story, I remember my mom reading this story to me as a kid. And so Matthew chapter seven, it says, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rains come in torrents and floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it was built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. It's like a person who builds a house upon sand. When the rains and flood come and the wind beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. Today we're gonna look at what the Babylonian culture was built upon. Like Jesus saying, listen, build your house upon a strong foundation. Build your house upon biblical principles. And the Babylonian culture was built upon some things that I would consider sand. I'm gonna use that a lot today. Babylonian sand, Babylonian sand. We got all our blanks to fill in today. If you're a note taker, we're we're gonna kind of walk through that. So I love how he says in verse 24 though, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. And so there's some lessons it would be best we learn without having to go through the pain of it. Some lessons it would be best to learn because dad said, I wouldn't do that, or, or the teacher said, here's how this works, or the coach said, or, or, or what have you. So I, I shared this story with the students a couple of weeks ago, for, so for some of them, it'll be a repeat. But when Landon was little bitty, he was about four, and man, he was a busy kid. Whew, he was up into everything. And one day, Jerry was upstairs, and she was ironing. So, Matt, this is an iron. We use this to get wrinkles out of clothes. It's really, never seen one? So, you know that this gets hot. So, our iron, and I'm assuming most operate that way, to get the iron hot, you set it up like that. And it takes it a few minutes to warm up. And then when when it's warm, and I use a lot of steam, you know what I'm saying? And so, you can turn it over and... And you're good, five, six, seven, ten seconds. But then, you know, the heating element has shut off, and so the heat's transferred to the cloth and material, and then you set it back up, and it, you know, it starts to warm again, and you let it set for 10, 12, 15 seconds, and then it's ready to go again. Jerry, Jerry was upstairs ironing. I was in the room at the time, and Landon was just hovering. Like, he's just here, there, like, he's just, just everywhere. And at one point, she set that up, and boy, he, he was intrigued by the steam. And mama said, baby, don't touch that. It's hot. Well, I, he gets it from me. <laughs> like, I just got to learn the lesson for myself. You know what I'm saying? Like, don't eat that. It'll make you sick. Oh, yeah, let's try. You know what I'm saying? Don't look at that. It'll hurt your eyes. Look at what? I mean, there's some of us, you have to just learn the lesson the hard way. Come on, represent today. You are that person. I mean, 
So she's like, baby, don't, don't touch that. It's hot. I don't know if she would have said, baby, don't touch that. It will burn you if it would have connected the dots. But uh, anyway, she, she, she sets it up and he touches it. And it's like, he touches it. There's a moment of silence. And there's, ah! I'm not doing it again. That's all you get, right? Like, he burned his little bitty hand. He had been warned. I don't know if Jerry would have said, don't touch that baby, it'll, it'll burn you. I, I don't know, but, but there are some of us that we just have to go through the stuff to learn the stuff, but Jesus is saying, listen, if you're wise, let me save you some pain in your life. Let me save you some trouble. Anyone who hears my teaching and obeys it, you don't have to touch the iron yourself. Man, you're wise. You're actually like building your house on a, on a rock foundation instead of building it upon sand. Today would be one of those lessons. Let's learn from someone else. Let's not touch the iron and figure it out by ourselves. Let's learn from a person who has gone before us about the damage that pride will do in our life. Just like last week, the passage does a really good job of telling the story. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a lot of verses. There's like 24 verses and that's part of what you do when you read these historical passages, you just read. So Daniel chapter four, and I'm gonna start at verse one, and then I'm gonna kind of skip selectively, and I'll explain as we go. So if you're following along, I'll holler out bingo numbers so you can keep up with me. So, all right, Daniel chapter four, verse one, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar sent this message to the people of every race, nation, and language throughout the world, and he says, peace and prosperity to you. I want you all to know about the miraculous signs and wonders the most high God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how wonderful his wonders. His kingdom will last forever, his rule through all generations. All right, so Daniel 4 is off to a good start. I mean, we, we've, the last several weeks, we've talked about King Nebuchadnezzar and his relationship with God from the dream about the statue and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the fire and, and at the end of that, him giving praise to God. So he starts Daniel chapter 4 with, hey, peace and prosperity to everybody, listen, Let's talk about the most high God, all right? So now, let's see what happens. Verse four, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity. History tells us they did not have flushing toilets. I don't know how you call that comfort and prosperity, but that's what the brother's gonna say anyway, all right? But one night, I had a dream that frightened me. I saw visions that terrified me as I lay in bed, so I issued an order calling in all the wise men of Babylon so they could tell me what my dream meant. Sounds familiar. When all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, fortune tellers came in, I told them the dream, but they couldn't tell me what it meant. The first time that he had a dream, he brought all those people in, the magicians and enchanters and all that, and he's like, I need you to tell me what I dreamed, and then I need you to tell me what it means. But this time he's like, let's just skip the first step. I'm going to tell you the dream and then you can tell me what it means. I just, I want to point out when we read through this dream, really not that hard to figure out. And so I'm not sure as if they couldn't interpret the dream and that is probably what happened. That God probably blocked their ability to kind of decipher what's going on. But I think there's also, they lacked the boldness to tell the king Probably what he didn't want to hear, but Daniel had a God-inspired boldness to stand against the Babylonian culture that he lived in. Somebody ought to say amen. 
All right, so verse eight. At last Daniel came in before me, the king, and I told him the dream. So keep in mind Daniel's Babylonian name. They changed his name to Belteshazzar, and his street name is Shazzy, right? Now, the king is going to tell Daniel his dream. So I want to jump to verse 19, because it, it, the, the king tells Daniel the dream, and then Daniel retells the dream back to the king, but he, he adds the interpretation. So just for the sake of not reading 40 verses this morning, I want to jump to verse 19, and let's just read what happens in the dream, but it's Daniel talking back to the king. is like, okay, well, here's what you dreamed, and, and so on and so forth. So verse 19, upon hearing this, Daniel, also known as Shazzy, was overcome for a time. Like he was frightened by the meaning of the dream. Then the king said to him, Belteshazzar, don't be alarmed by the dream and what it means. Daniel's like, it's easy for you to say, you don't know what it means. All right, so Belteshazzar, or Daniel, replied, I wish the events foreshadowed in this dream would happen to your enemies, my lord, and not to you. The dream you saw... The tree you saw in the dream was growing very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves and was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade and birds nested in its branches. Verse 22, that tree, your majesty, is you. For you have grown strong and great. Your greatness reaches up to heaven and you rule to the ends of the earth. Verse 23, then you saw a messenger. And the king, when he's describing his dream, he says, I saw a messenger. Like, in his dream, basically an angel or a messenger of some sort showed up. A holy one coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump and its roots in the ground, bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Let it be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals of the field for seven periods of time. Full disclosure. We don't really know what that periods of time means. Our best guess, it means seven cycles of seasons. Like our be- some translations will see for seven years. That's our best guess, but we're we really not sure. Because even as this started, it said when Daniel heard the dream or whatever, like he was kind of quiet for a time. So we don't know that it meant that Daniel was quiet for a full year, but here it says that you live with the animals of the field for seven periods of time. We think that means seven cycles of seasons, meaning years. Could be something different. Okay. This is what the dream means, your majesty, and what the Most High has declared will happen to my Lord the King. You will be driven from human society, and you will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow. You will be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. Like, you, you, you got some lessons to learn. But the stump and the roots of the tree will, were left in the ground. This means that you will receive your kingdom back again when you have learned that heaven really is in charge. I know you think you're a really big deal, but you, you got to go learn a lesson that God who is seated on the throne Heaven is really what is in control. King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. So he's translated the dream that you're gonna kind of go off and identify as a cow for seven times, you know what I'm saying? And, and you're gonna learn a lesson 
And so Daniel says in verse 27, now king, let me give you some advice. Stop what you're doing because the track that you are on, this Babylonian culture has influenced you. The track that you're on, it's gonna lead down a path. It's a lesson you're gonna have to learn the hard way, but you got a chance. You could stop right here. You could stop sinning. You could do what is right. You could break from your wicked past. You could be merciful to people. Perhaps then you would continue to prosper. Verse 28. But all these things did happen. Old Nebi. Verse 29. 12 months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. Verse 30. As he looked out across the city, he said, Look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence and display of my majestic splendor. I had some fun this week learning about old King Nebuchadnezzar. He's quite an interesting guy, actually. Really what I set out to discover, does history outside of Scripture record this seven years of insanity? Because literally, King Nebuchadnezzar is, is basically going to lose his sanity. He, as the Bible tells it, he's going to go out and he's going to live out in the fields. If you were to keep reading that description, his hair is going to be all like just crazy and look like feathers of an eagle. Like I was looking in history, does anywhere else in history record this about Nebuchadnezzar's insanity? So I'm going to geek out for, for just a second on history, all right? Prior to the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrians, or what would be modern-day Syria, okay, the Assyrians, they were kind of the bully in the neighborhood. They, they were a big, strong empire. They didn't reach to the heights that the Babylonians did, but the Assyrians were, were kind of the big dog in the neighborhood. And Nebi's father, his name was Nabopolassar. Nabopolassar, he raised up an army, a Babylonian army, and he defeated the Assyrians. And Nebuchadnezzar was his firstborn son. He was the legit heir to the Babylonian throne. But at an early age, Nabopolassar, he sent his son off to be the high priest of a temple to one of their goddesses in the town where they were from, the town in Uruk. Okay? And so at a very early age, Nebuchadnezzar was put in kind of a spiritual role. Then his father moved him into the military, actually made him a leader in the army. We don't know if he was a general. We assume he was a higher ranking official. And he actually was a part of the army that destroyed the Assyrians. But he didn't really like war, as history kind of puts together. Military battles, even though they were ruthless and destroyed a lot of people, that wasn't really what he enjoyed. That wasn't his strength. So in ancient times, when a new dynasty or a new empire or a new king would take power, they wanted to ensure that their legacy was the one that was remembered. They wanted to ensure that their legacy was the one that built the city. Their legacy um, was recorded as the greatest in history. So a very common practice in ancient history is that when a new king or a new empire or a new lineage, if you would, they would come to power, it was very common practice that they would destroy any history, any records, any monuments that the previous king or previous kingdom that had gone before you, they would destroy them, okay? So it meant they destroyed statues. It meant they destroyed records that, that talked about previous empires. King Nebuchadnezzar knew this, okay? 
And one of the things you discover about King Nebuchadnezzar is that he really liked to build stuff. I mean, he was an ancient Minecrafter. I mean, he really loved to, to in construction and building was kind of his thing. I want to put a picture up now that is still a structure that he built. They survived that um, their, their greatest enemies would come from the north. So the northern part of Babylon had the best walls, had the strongest walls. And this is actually the Ishtar Gate, but it's the northern gate. And you can see, it's absolutely gorgeous. It's beautiful. You can go and see it today. He also constructed what many believe to be one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Okay, so let me explain what happened there. Do you remember last couple of weeks we've had this statue that comes from the first dream? And the statue represented the kingdoms that were to come. And if you were here the week that we unpacked this, you see the kingdom that would follow him would be the Medo-Persian. That would be the Medes would partner up with the Persians and they would become one great military and they would together defeat the Babylonians. So it was the Medes and the Persians coming together. Well, to kind of prevent that from happening early on, Nebuchadnezzar married a Mede. He married a Median princess and he moved her to Babylon. And so the story goes that she greatly missed her home. Where she lived was nothing like where she grew up. She grew up in kind of a mountainous uh, area that had lots of trees and lots of vegetation and stuff. So he did his best in Babylon to recreate her homeland. So he tried to create this mountainous place. So he actually built buildings. And then on those buildings, he would just build these beautiful patios in, in what became known as the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. It's one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And there's a lot of just discussion about did he really build it? Who built it? Some think the Assyrians built it. But a lot of credit goes to Nebuchadnezzar for building the hanging gardens of Babylon. Matter of fact, one historian visited Babylon a hundred years after Nebuchadnezzar. And he described this city as still just immaculate and beautiful and breathtaking. Since Nebuchadnezzar knew whoever came after him would attempt to erase his legacy and destroy any monument that he would build or destroy any records about him, he had a system of stamps that were made. And almost every brick that went into the north gate, that went into the wall, that went into the palaces, that went into that big, beautiful building that became Hangar, almost every brick, when it was in the being constructed, the, the brick was being formed, it was stamped with this stamp. All right, let me stick that up there. And that is actually a brick, and there are lots of them. And this is what that stamp reads. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, supporter of Esagalia and Ezra, exalted firstborn king of Nabopolassar, king of Babylon. Almost every brick they constructed bore his name in the name of his father. Okay. To this day, there are bricks with that inscription because he wanted to overwhelmingly secure his legacy. Like if a new king was going to come in, he'd have to tear down the whole city because Nebuchadnezzar was stamped everywhere. So I set out to see the seven times, the seven years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign where he literally loses his mind. Does history tell this story outside of Scripture? What I found was something very similar happened to one of his grandsons while he was king. Because Nebuchadnezzar's son would take over, then his grandson would take over, and while he took over, he also lost his mind for almost a decade. 
and did what Scripture says his grandfather did. And so some people are saying that, well, Daniel was kind of prophesying that that, that would happen, and, and we're not sure if King Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind or whatever. What I discovered about old King Nebuchadnezzar was the first 10 years of his reign were very well documented. Lots of record, a lot of history, okay? He ruled for 43 years. And in what history records about him, there is actually a decade of history missing from his story, okay? It was very common for kings to build great monuments to their success. They would win a battle, they would build a monument to that. If if something significant happened, they would construct statues to commemorate great victories and accomplishments. But the negative stuff, the stuff we don't talk about, they didn't build monuments to that. Like there's no monument to the fact that King Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind for seven years. We didn't even write it down in history because we want to portray our legacy in the brightest and best way possible. And then one day there was this rare find in a British museum, a Babylonian cuneiform tablet. And in 1975, a guy by the name of A.K. Grayson did his best to decipher what it said and publish what it said. The tablet is very broken and not every line can be read, but these are some of the lines of significance. You can Google this, okay? I even gave you the number up there, BM34113, right? Some of the things that it says, and and we believe this gives enough evidence that there was a time in Nebuchadnezzar's life that he had this exile of insanity. The tablet says, Nebuchadnezzar considered his life of no value to him, and Babylon speak of bad counsel to evil Murdoch. Okay, just random lines, but evil Murdoch was actually his son we believe, who reigned as a regent while Nebuchadnezzar was in his exile of insanity, but they're saying he didn't do a very good job, like he gave bad advice. He does not show love to son and daughter, family and clan do not exist, meaning there was a time in Nebuchadnezzar's life that he didn't care for his family, he didn't care for his kids, whatever. There's a line that says, his attention was not directed towards promoting the welfare of Isagela, and Babylon, meaning he just didn't care. Like he didn't care about Babylon. And then it says, he prays to the Lord of Lords, he raised his hands in supplication. A lot of lines are missing, kind of hard to put together. But what old A.K. Grayson discovered, there is evidence here that backs up Daniel's story that for a time, King Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind. It's the exile of insanity. God warned him. God warned him through a dream. Daniel chapter four, verse 29. 12 months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace. Verse 30, he looked out across the city and he said, look at this great city of Babylon by my own power. I have built this beautiful city. My royal residence to display. My, me, my, my, I. He built his house upon sand. So there's three things that the sand of Babylonian culture. Okay, the first one is oppression. They were a very oppressive society. Remember, when Babylon came in and they conquered people, they forced them to move. That's how Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego even ended up in Babylon to begin with. When they conquered you, they, you knew you were conquered. They were a very oppressive people. They were brutal to their captives. The second was prosperity. The story even stated it back in the beginning. I, Nebuchadnezzar, 
living in my palace in comfort and prosperity. Okay, so you got oppression, you got prosperity, and you have pride. As he looked out across that city, my, I, my, my. I did this. I made this. Do you remember the statue? The golden statue that he wanted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to bow down to? He made that out of defiance to God. God gave him a dream of a statue and said, there'll be all these kingdoms. And Nebuchadnezzar said, no, 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 God, you don't understand. My lineage, my legacy is going to be bigger than your will. Me, my, I. Proverbs 16, 18 said, pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. And a fall is exactly what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Pride would be the center of the first rebellion, probably before humanity ever came along. Isaiah chapter 14 tells the story of how Lucifer, we think, he was one of the three archangels. He was this beautiful, created angel, and he, he got to looking at himself and go, man, I'm, I'm a really big deal. I could probably do better than God. Isaiah 14 says, for you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. Like, I can do better than he can. I will preside on the mountains of the gods. Like, I'm going to be the God that's in charge. It was pride that got Lucifer kicked out of heaven. And if we're not going to touch the hot iron, if we want to build our house on a house of rock, we should take a warning from what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar and not let pride be the destruction of our life, lest we have our own exile of insanity. Pride will cause you to lose your mind. So seven symptoms that pride might be a thing for you. Okay, I'm going to go quick. Seven symptoms of pride. Number one, fault finding in others. Fault finding in others. In parentheses, I just put critical. It just comes easy to criticize everybody else. Everybody else is just stupid. Everybody else is just idiots, right? It's so easy to find fault in everyone else. We judge people by their failures, we judge ourselves by our intentions. And this one, I'll be honest with you, it's kind of hard to see in the mirror because we don't think we're critical, we just think we're really, really smart. And if you find yourself saying, boy, I sure hope so-and-so is listening, or boy, I, I sure hope so-and-so will hear this, be careful because you might be walking on prideful faith. Number two, a harsh spirit. If you find yourself speaking down to people, People are just something that you use. There are people who are beneath you. You don't value and appreciate people. You can speak harshly to someone and then just go, man, I was just joking. I was just kidding. You might be walking on the sands of pride. Number three, superficiality. Vanity. You care a lot about what people think about you. You care a lot about how people see you. You really care a lot about your image. And even spiritually, we work hard at fighting those, those sins that are external, right? While the secret sins, we pay little attention to, okay? Anybody out there? All right, everybody say, I love BK, because I'm just telling you, they hurt the more we go down the line, all right? That's why some of y'all didn't say I love you. You're like, mm, I'm on. Time to get the kids. Ready to go. Because this one got me. Defensiveness. 
True humility is not knocked off of balance and thrown into a defensive posture when you're challenged, when you're corrected, or even rebuked. Someone who loves you can say, hey, this doesn't look good on you, or hey, could, could we do a little better here? Or, hey, how can I help you with this? And, and you have the humility to receive it, not get defensive, not make excuses for it, but you can be humble enough to hear it. It doesn't automatically put you in retaliation mode. Like while they're talking, you're not listening, you're thinking about what you're going to say. You really can genuinely listen to learn, not listen to defend. You said you loved me. I don't know if y'all liars or not right now. All right, number five, a presumption before God. And this one has kind of two paths to it, okay? The first one, not a very common one. There's some, there's some. But not very many people fall into this category of, dude, I am just killing it spiritually. You know what I'm saying? Like, God is lucky to have this guy on his team. You know what I'm saying? Like, no wonder he saved me. There's not, there are, I mean, don't point anybody out right now, right? But there are, but this is not really the form of pride that we fall into with this presumption before God. The more commonly presumption for God is, listen, I know God forgives, but my sins are too big for him to forgive. I'm so good at sinning <laughs> that God's grace is not big enough to forgive me. My ability to mess up is bigger than his grace to forgive me. That's, that's a version of pride. Number six, you said you love me. I told you, these hurt further down the list we go. Number six is a desperation for attention. Selfie takers, do I need to go there? Are we good? Like, we all right? Instagram lovers? Pride is starving for attention so that when you're in a conversation, you dominate the conversation. Or maybe it's a way of, you just, you can't find a way to say no because I need people to need me. I need people to like me. So I'm gonna say yes. If I kill myself doing it, I'm gonna say yes. Or I need to be the hero, or I need people to celebrate me, that is a form of pride. If you wish for a better spouse, if you wish for a different marriage, that's a form of pride. If you need to drive the right car, have a bigger house, have the right title at work, saying, when people see that, then they'll admire me, that is walking in the sand of pride. Last we is neglecting others. You prefer some people over other people. Like we give honor to people that have earned the honor. Okay? We're thrilled when people of power acknowledge us, when they see us, when they actually want to know us, right? We'll pass over the weak. We pass over inconvenient people because they don't offer me much. They don't, actually, they just offer me inconvenience. And neglecting others is a form of pride. I could probably keep going, but I feel like I've wounded myself enough. I need to stop right there. Babylon was built upon the sand of oppression, prosperity, in my kingdom, my great, my great pride. So Neb has this dream, 
And Daniel pleads with him to change course. King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop. What you're doing is gonna cause an exile of insanity. Stop sinning. Do what's right. Break from your wicked past. I love this. Be merciful to people. Like you're living in comfort and plush and prosperity and there are people within blocks of your palace that are suffering because of your oppression. Perhaps if you change your ways, then perhaps God will allow you to continue to prosper. Don't touch the iron, it will burn you. Build your house upon a rock. King, learn from what God wants to tell you, but old Neb's just like me. He's gotta reach up and touch the iron and feel it for himself. 12 months later, all these things did happen. So what's the cure? What's the prescription for pride? We talked about the symptoms, now let's talk about the cure. How do I stay away from the sands of Babylon? Number one is confession. And pride is, is kind of hard to see in the mirror. It, it, just, it, it, it just is. It's just kind of hard to see in the mirror. But to prevent my own exile of insanity, I need to evaluate my life. I need to confess openly to God and honestly to someone who loves me and is praying and fighting for me and can help protect me. I need to confess to someone that I love. Listen, you nailed me about seven out of seven. Confession, Psalm 139, David prayed this. You know why? Because David was a king and David had a beautiful palace and David wrestled with the sand of pride as well. And he said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. We all need to self-examine. God, if there's any area of pride in me that offends you. If there's anything in my life, God, that is getting in the way of my ability to connect with you, my ability to worship with you, my ability to spiritually grow, God, would you point it out? Would you help get it out of my life? Because I'm telling you, the lesson that King Nebuchadnezzar had to learn was a painful, lonely, dark lesson. And I don't wanna go through that. Amen, everybody? It begins with Confession. Secondly, it begins with generosity. That's one of the things David specifically said to him. Specifically, he said, be merciful to the poor. Ladies and gentlemen, if you think for one moment that God has blessed you for your pleasure and your enjoyment, you have the wrong idea about God. Does God love his kids? Absolutely. Do I love my kids? Most days. No, I love my kids. I want them to enjoy life. Yes, absolutely. But I also recognize God has given my kids gifts and abilities and talents and dreams and purpose and destiny. Woo, amen. But those serve for the purpose of other people. That we need to be open-handed and we need to be generous people. God's heart beats for other people for lost people, for poor people, for hurting people. Throughout scripture, we are compelled to be generous and help the poor. Be generous, help the poor, help those in need. If you help those in time of need, when you have need, you'll have plenty. Sure, we can be wise. We need to take care of our family, but don't you ever use the name of wisdom 
to allow you to be selfish and prideful and not be generous. And I'm not saying this because the church is funded on generosity. I'm saying this because this is one of the cures for your life and your battle against pride. One of the antidotes for being prideful is living open-handed and say, God, you gave it to me. I didn't build it. It wasn't my kingdom. It's your kingdom, and I give it to you. Amen, everybody? Generosity is a cure for pride. And lastly, serving. Serving. Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, took a bowl of water and wrapped a towel around his waist and got on his knees and washed the feet of his followers, including Judas. And that, think, think about it, I've never connected these dots before. That act of service reminded him the purpose of the cross. That act of service, is it possible that that very act of service pushed away any fleshly temptation that would creep up? Remember, he prayed in the garden, God, if there's any other way you can take this cup of suffering, is it possible that him on his feet Washing the feet of Peter reminded himself deep down in his soul, I've got to go to a cross. Could it be the humility of washing those feet, the power of loving his neighbor? Is that what gave him the boldness? Is that what just that, that last minute oof, to go face the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion that would await him? The power of loving your neighbor, the power of serving your neighbor really does more for us and in us than it does for the people we serve. Counted up one day around here how many people we'd taken on mission trips. Just, just in my tenure here, that didn't, I mean, church was started on a mission trip. But at, at one point, we kind of stopped counting, we were about the 180 mark of people that had gone to Nicaragua with us or gone to Japan or Kenya or whatever. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of people to get their passport, raise the money, go on a mission trip. And on those mission trips, we've helped a lot of people. We've ministered to a lot of people. We've touched a lot of lives. We've even seen a lot of people get saved. So I know that eternally we changed people's destiny. But I don't know that I changed their physical life much other than maybe in the short term. We ministered to them, but I don't, I don't know that we changed their earthly life much. But I've seen a lot of people come back that airplane and live differently in this life. And their life was changed forever. Look, if you own a book and you have the education to read the book, you're in the top 30% of the world's wealthiest people. If you own a car, drive the car, you're in the top 18% of the world's wealthiest people. I don't feel very wealthy. A car I own's got to be worked on. My fear is we're surrounded by Babylon. Sand that's full of oppression, prosperity, and pride. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, there's a couple of things I want to invite you to do. First, hit the subscribe button. That way, you won't miss a single episode. Secondly, if this message has impacted you and you would like to help us reach others, visit our website at hillspring.tv and hit the Give Now button so that we can take this message around the globe. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.